If you were to ask a pastor, and people do, they ask this a lot. As soon as I find, they find out I'm a pastor, uh, Dan will tell you this too. They, one of the questions they ask is, and it's the funniest question, what do you do all day? Right? We know what you do on Sunday, right? You preach and then you go home and I don't take a nap or do whatever, but what do you do the rest of the week? And they're always, they're, they're truly dumbfounded, right? They have no idea what pastors do when they're not preaching. It's, uh, it, it cracks me up. I don't know why. And, and the answer that I've been coming around to, and I don't think I've ever really given it to anybody, is I, I study humans. I study human behavior. That's what I do during the week. And I can imagine them asking me if I ever tell somebody that, they're going to ask me, whoa, 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 time out, Pastor. I thought you studied the Bible and God and Jesus and things like that. It's like, well, well, I do. (laughs) It's like by studying God and the Bible and Jesus, I find out an awful lot about human nature, human behavior, right? The Bible, for me anyway, has proven to be the most accurate descriptor, the most honest, right? Pulls no punches, the most honest book out there about us, about, about human, human nature, right? And, and we find out, and here's what we find out, it's the craziest thing. I mean, there's like five billion of us, I don't know, I lost track, seven billion, right? Like I was counting. Um, seems to be like seven billion's the number now. And, and you look at all these seven billion and, and you got to arrive at how amazingly different and unique every single person is, right? It just, it, you stand in awe of God and his creativeness in all of these incredibly different, different people. Um, but then when you put them all together and you aggregate them in kind of a, a meta kind of way, um, we're all amazingly predictable, right? When you add up all the numbers, it's like all the similarities slowly melt away and we're all, we're all a lot alike and we're very predictable, incredibly. Like, for example, I can probably stand here and I can tell you, and I, and I, I don't, know you all that well. I've been getting to know you. And those of you who are watching from home, I don't know you from Adam. Nothing personal. Maybe I'll meet you one day. If your name is Adam, that'll be really cool. Um, But I can tell you, I can tell you right now, probably um, for the most of you, if not all of you, I can tell you exactly how much more, exactly how much more money you need to be happy. I think I've shared this with you before. A little bit more, right? Every single, well, hopefully not every single, but for the vast majority of us, just a little bit more. Yeah, pastor's right. That will make just a little bit more, and, and I will be truly happy. Um, I also know what every parent, what, what the dream and aspiration of every parent who has children, right? What, kind of what their dream and aspiration, and there's a lot of them when you have kids. You got a lot of, but I think the number one, the number one, I'll tell you this right now, and you might not even be aware of this. You want to have a great relationship with your adult children, Bottom line, that everything else can, can change, but to have a great relationship with your adult children, that, that's, that's from God's Word. I, I'll just tell you right now. Um, I also know what most of us want out of life. And again, most of us, the vast majority of us, I, I believe this is true. We all want to be great, right? We all want to have purpose and significance, and we want to be impactful in people's lives, and we that's what we want. This, this is just human, human nature at every stage of life, from the playground to the final days. I know in, with my dad, spending time with him in his final days, he became very, very, very acutely aware of the impact that he had had on his world. That preoccupied his thinking. He, he thought a lot about that, right? Have, have I been a good dad? Some of you have seen the movie um, Saving Private Ryan, and, and Private Ryan is saved by this platoon of guys, and they're all killed. And, and as the last one is dying, Tom Hanks, right, he, he says to the guy, look, Make sure you live a life worthy of what's been done for you. 
And so at the very, very end of the movie, you see this Private Ryan as an older man. He's standing in a cemetery, and he's just breaking down. He's, he's saying to his wife, tell me that I've lived a life worthy of what those guys did for me. Tell me. I have to know. Was my life worthwhile? Was it worth what they, what they paid? And it's, it's an incredible scene. I mean, it, it just it, it breaks you. Um, again, our, our whole life, we, we want to be counted. Right? We want to be recognized for doing something and not nothing, not just, just, just getting by. There was a social psychological study done, and they, 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 they repeated it many, many times, and it was basically two groups of people. One group of people, they were paid a whole bunch of money to do something incredibly meaningless, right? bucket loads of money to do something that made no difference whatsoever. And this other group, they paid just horrible and they really worked them to death, and, and, but what they were doing was valuable, and they could see that it made impact, it had meaning, um, it was significant, they, they were making a difference. And at the end of the day, I mean, time after time after time after time, guess what? Guess what? You can figure this out. These people wanted to quit, and they wanted to go over here and join these people. Right? It didn't matter how much money we make. It, it just, that, that, at the end of the day, that kind of goes by the wayside. Did we live a life where we made a difference? And I, I, I'll take my prediction a step further. I think that many of you want to be great because somebody in your life, and, and it was more than likely a very ordinary person, right? For all you knew, just an ordinary Tom, you know, Mary, whatever, and, and they made an impact on you. And I don't know what they did, but in your eyes, they were great. Like when they walked by, it's like the natural, the natural law of humanity is temporarily suspended as they walk by. They raise up everybody, and they make everybody around them better just by being in the room. You've met people like that, right? And you think to yourself, I want my life to be like that. I want to be like that person. And, and, and again, I'm wildly guessing here. My guess is that all of us in this room, everyone watching and listening right now at home, wherever you are, you, this person has come to mind. Who is, who, who, who is this, this person, right? Um, and they've made such an impact on you that you now want to make an impact somehow on somebody. You don't even know who. You just want to be that, that person, right, that, that, that did something. Now, and again, we can nuance this thing all we want, um, but the bottom line is we... we we all want to matter. We all want to make a difference, again, in somebody's life. And this longing is nothing new, right? Back in Jesus' days, several, several points in the gospel and several of the, the letters that we see in the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament, right, we, we, we get this idea that um, there is this principle, there is this idea that people want to be great all the way back to, to Genesis, right, the Tower of Babel. We want to be great. And they went about it the wrong way. Right? They went about it without God. Like, we can be great without you. Well, that caused all sorts of problems, and now we've got a Spanish-language app on, on, on my phone, that's the, the Babel app. Supposedly, it'll give me language back. The Tower of Babel, it took away. Craziest thing. Um, but again, this, lo- this longing for us to be great isn't anything new. At several points in the gospel, Jesus' disciples, right, and, and Dan brought this out, um, they're, they're always... It's just a whole bunch of little, little mini episodes where they're arguing about who's going to be greatest. Because they get this idea, they understand that Jesus is introducing a new kingdom, right? They, they kind of got that idea. They're not sure how the kingdom is going to be built. All they know is the kingdoms of the world that they've experienced so far. And they're kind of trying to set themselves up to match the kingdoms of this world, whatever Jesus is going to usher in. They're kind of worried about who's going to be sitting at the right and the left hand. Those are the positions of power. And so they have this argument, right, that Dan shared in Matthew 
chapter 9, so verse 33, 37. And, and, and they're arguing and they're, they're, they're embarrassed, right? You get that? We're going to dig into it a little bit, but they're embarrassed because they're recognizing that what Jesus is talking about and what they keep getting caught arguing about, they're not the same thing. Like he's talking about great and they're talking about great, but they're not talking about the same great, right? And they're recognizing it, but they're, they're still stumped because they have no point of reference in their world that would demonstrate what in the world that Jesus is talking about, right? So Jesus is going to have to going to have to do some things, right? So Mark chapter 9, verse 33 and 34, when he was in the house, he asked him, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was going to be the greatest. And again, the debate isn't surprising, same thing, different day, but Jesus' response is surprising, right? He doesn't tell them that they shouldn't want to be great. Remember back in Matthew chapter 5, 6 or 7, I can't remember, but um, Jesus is telling the, all these people who want to collect up treasures, he's like, treasures aren't bad, but just don't collect them up and save them in the wrong place, right? Save treasures in heaven. Don't, don't save them here on earth. That's like saving Confederate money at the end of the Civil War. It's not going to do much good much longer, right? Put your treasures where they're going to make an impact, right, in, in heaven. So same thing. He tells them, right, treasure isn't bad. Greatness isn't bad. In fact, both are gifts from your heavenly Father. That's what drives you to do the great things that He calls you to do, to step in where angels fear to tread. That's, that's a God's gift, right? But He does reframe the question. He redefines what it means to be great, to be impactful, and to be significant in a way that's not about being better than somebody or beating somebody. See, we got this idea in order to be great, Muhammad Ali was the greatest because he beat up every boxer there was. He was a great boxer. I mean, if you ever had a chance to watch him, it was just mesmerizing. He could beat all the other boxers. But could he truly say that he was the greatest? That's a stretch. Even for Muhammad Ali. Again, it's not about being better than somebody or beating somebody. Instead, he introduces us to something we're going to call the greatness principle, just for lack of a better name. Nelson Searcy opens up his book on greatness by asking readers to imagine opening up the newspaper and reading your obituary. Now, this isn't the typical question that you get in a lot of sermons. Pretend like, you know, what, what, what are they going to say at your, your funeral, your memorial service? And in this situation... Um, he described somebody who did one day open up the newspaper who was very much still alive and read their obituary. What had happened is his name is Alfred Nobel, right? And you who are in this community, you all know about big explosions, <laughs> the biggest the world's ever known. So I think you might know this story, but I'm, I'm going to kind of tell it anyway. Um, again, not a dream sequence or anything like that. He actually opens up 1888, one sunny morning. He's He's dead. But what had happened is the, the newspaper had found out that his brother had died, and so the writer of the article didn't know which brother, so he researched Alfred and wrote all about Alfred's life, even though Alfred wasn't dead. But what caught Alfred's attention, what shocked him, was well, the, this writer summed up his life, and he, it was summed up in a single phrase, the merchant of death. Alfred Nobel, the merchant of death. Again, maybe some of you guys know a story. He's a Swedish inventor, chemist. He invented dynamite, right? And from what I understand, I'm not going to say this is absolute truth because I, I didn't look it up. Um, 
His idea was, his goal in life was to make the world a better place. And so kind of along the lines of mm, sort of a nuclear weapons, right? We, we had in the 60s a, a, a strategy. It was, it was initialed MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. It was the idea that the bombs were so destructive that nobody in their right mind would use one. That was kind of the idea, and, and that's why he, that was the idea, from what I understand, behind dynamite, right? It was so explosive that it would stop people from going to war with each other, because it was just so, it would kill so many people. Well, that's not the way mankind rolls, right? If they saw an opportunity to kill more people, boy, he had people, right, signing up big time. So the merchant of death, and face to face with this reality and how he would be remembered, right? How he had spent his time on earth, what he had pursued above everything else while on earth, the merchant of death, he decided with my remaining years, I'm going to change things. So he introduces a, a plan, and, and it starts with what, what's called, we know him as the Nobel Prizes. And he launched, he got this thing going while he was still alive. He dies, he leaves 90% of his income, which was substantial, because uh, everybody loves dynamite. Um, left 90% 90, 90 of his, his wealth to establish this, this, these series of prizes, and, and you know them as the Nobel Prizes, um, to those who during the preceding year shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. So we have all these categories, right? And you see the, the recipients every year. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. It, it's a really, really, really um, big deal. Um, and so, kind of here at the beginning of this message, how, how will you be remembered? Right? Alfred was remembered as the, 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 the uh, merchant of death. And just kind of stop for just a moment. Are, are you having the impact on the world that you desire? Because I think we all desire that, if we're honest. Um, and have you found the purpose and the meaning for which your heart longed? Because we all have this longing. We all have this yearning. Right? Have you... Have you finally found it, right? Again, I've said this a lot of times, and it's, I, I got to explain it a little bit more carefully this morning. I prefer the melancholy sadness of a funeral or a memorial service over the happiness, the giddiness of a wedding. Now, I'll, I'll let me kind of fill that out a little bit. I, it's not like I dislike weddings. They're really, really wonderful, right? I, I was a part of one. Um, I got, I'm married. Uh, and I officiate them, and I try to smile a lot, right? You don't want the melancholy, boring pastor doing your wedding ceremony. Um, but I recognize that it, at, at funerals, what happens is, is people are they're sharing their experiences with a person. And as you sit in your pew and as you sit in your chair, you recognize that whoever this person who has passed on, everybody in the audience recognizes that they had what would be called a principle-centered life. Something drove them. And every wedding, excuse me, every funeral, every memorial service, it's a little bit different. It could be the flag. It could be family. It could be, you know, just a whole range of stuff. But you clearly, by the end of a service, you know what this person lived for, right? And then inevitably what happens is you begin to look at your own life. And how do I match up? And maybe you don't want to match up to what they call the center of their life, but you begin to question you know, what, what, what is it? Um, but, but again, and you have the open mic and you have people pouring out their hearts, but at a wedding, um, none of that discussion is going on. Nobody's talking about life principles, right? Um, we'd like to hear, I don't hear it very often, a married couple stand up in front of their, the people gathered to witness their, their, uh, their ceremony, their, their commitment to God. They, you'd, I'd like to hear them say, you know what? Um, 
My, my spouse and I, we have been serving God as single people, and God has called us to a higher level of service, a higher level of love to this community. And apparently the only way that we can love at that level is, is as a partnership. And so God's called us to be together, and together we're going to be even greater of a servant than we were singly. Now, some people, God doesn't make that call. As a single person, you will be my greatest. You will be my greatest. Some people are called to be single. But it's not very often that, you know, what, what we hear at, at weddings is you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. Whole, and, and if you hear the sermon, and there's sometimes a sermon, I promise you, nobody's listening to it. <laughs> nobody's listening to a single word the pastor's saying. They're looking at the bride. They're looking at the room. You know, they're thinking about the party afterwards. You're gonna, you know, there's a thousand other things on your mind. But, boy, at a funeral, at a memorial service. And so, again, I, it's not like I like one or the other, but I recognize and appreciate the deeper thought that goes into one. I guess that's right. Um, again, a funeral, we, we hear principle-centered living. And at the weddings, we, we all hope and pray that the married couple standing up there all giddy and happy and smiling, those of us who know, right, we sit in our pews and we sit in our chairs and we hope they've seen a marriage counselor. And with that marriage counselor, they've looked at all the different ways and all the different centers that you can find for your life. And hopefully a good marriage counselor will have found something that they could both agree on, right? Something that would be good. Now, again, there's several good principles around which to center your life. I'm going to just name off three or four or five, six of them here. Henry David Thoreau, you've heard of him. Mid-1800s, early 1800s, 1840s. Civil disobedience was his, his thing, right? He's very instrumental in ending slavery. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. kind of picks up on what Henry David Thoreau was talking about and, and Mahatma Gandhi, and he, 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 he kind of puts this together as nonviolent protest, right? Kind of one of the things that Martin Luther King Jr. stood for. Mother Teresa, you, you, compassion, right? In Calcutta, India, living for the, 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 the worst situations of human suffering, that's just all she did day in, day out. And, and Winston Churchill, right, never, never surrender, never, never, never surrender. Like his, his thing, persistence. And, of course, you all know Oakland Raiders, L.A. Raiders, Las Vegas Raiders, back to Oakland. I don't know where they're going to end up. Al Davis, just win, baby. Right, that was his, that was his thing. And then there's a guy named Chris Sloter. Chris Sloter, he decided his thing would be mercy. He's from a church in North Carolina, and somehow, I don't know how it happened, but he got in touch and connected with, relationally with, with some orphanages in, in Kazakhstan, uh, in southern, the old Soviet Union, kind of up on top of China, down below um, Russia. And, and through this network and, and his home church, their home church is connected with these orphanages, and there's just this, now there's just this conduit of, of hope and, and promise for tomorrow between this North Carolina church and, and these orphanages in this little town destitute corner of the world in Kazakhstan because he decided my life will be about mercy. Now, here's the thing, the thing that you need to remember. If you forget everything else I say here this morning. The thing we got to remember is whether we realize it or not, we're all living by a principle. One principle or another, right? It's either intentional or it's by default, which is what a lot of marriages end up with. In my own marriage, I'll just tell you right now, we, we went through marriage counseling, but I wasn't paying attention. And I thought marriage, my, my principle-centered living is make Jerry happy. 
And, about, and, and it was chaotic for a year or two until I finally got a clue and figured it out, right, that my, my goal in life was to serve her, right? I, I got it backwards. I was like, why aren't you serving me? I'm not happy. Mm, bad you. That was horrible, horrible, horrible. Let's get off that for a moment here. Um, again, whether we realize it or not, we're all living by a principle. We either embrace the one that we want for ourselves or we fall into the ones chosen by our friends and our coworkers, and we don't even recognize it. It just happens, and it can be a whole list of crazy things. And I just want to ask you this morning, just stop for a moment and ask yourself, do you have a current guiding principle? Some of you will say, yeah, Bible, God, Jesus, right? <laughs> hit, hit, the, hit, the, hit the ones. And, and, Think about it, right? Just a little bit more. Is it leading you to the meaning and the significance that you desire and to which you have been called by your creator? Now, again, I listed a few principles, and, and I, I showed the people that followed them, and, and they all reached some pretty lofty heights, right? They all became world famous, every, everyone but Chris, I suppose, um, because of the principles that they had chosen. So, again, you can choose your own. Or they can be by default. Your friends can choose them. And again, you have a whole list here. I'll just show you a financial success, fame, power, popularity, a steady and secure job, raise a happy family, good physical condition, mastering a hobby, life of the party. That, that's a goal for a lot of people until they start having liver problems. And they decide maybe this is not a lofty goal, right? Um, Again, by the world standards, greatness can be incredibly elusive. I mean, there's all these different things that people call great. So many different meanings to so many different people. We were, in, in my block, we, my dad was a school teacher. There were, there were six of us in, and we were not wealthy. We find out later as adults, as we went back and talked to the kids on our block, as, as all of us are adults now, we were considered the rich ones on the street, which is just crazy because I know for a fact we were probably the poorest. Because here's how I know, all the other families on that block, it was like the second or third worst place to live in, in Escondido. It was just, it wasn't a great part of town. Um, right on the edge of the flower streets, right? Anyway, um, I, I recognized that we were not, well, I, I got that impression because all the other neighbors, all my friends, they'd live on the block for a couple years, and then they'd move up to a better house. They'd move to Bear Valley. They'd move over, you know, to the other part. And everybody, they'd only stay in this place for a while. We stayed forever, right? And somewhere in high school, my dad, because of the golf, the gas crisis in the 70s, he got a hold of a motorhome. We'd been camping in this horrible little Apache pop-up. I mean, man, we'd been everywhere in that thing, and it was, it was just horrible. Um, and so he got this incredible deal. Like, they were giving them away because the gas mileage was like nine miles of the gallon, and, and the cost of gas was like 57 cents a gallon, right? You remember those horrible days? And now we're just like, come back. Please come back, those beautiful days. Um, and so everyone on our block thought we were rich because we had this motorhome. But the fact of the matter is, my dad had decided we're not going to keep moving up. We're going to pour our money into family. That motorhome and, and our, our marathon summer vacations, that's what my dad valued. He wanted to spend time with his family so that he could instill his values in his family. He didn't let us just go running off during the summer. We, we were together for a long time during the summer in that little motorhome. Um, but that's what my dad my dad valued. And again, to a married couple without good marriage counseling, this list 
is a very real non-virtual minefield. If you're thinking about getting married, look at this list right now and talk to the person you're thinking about marrying because these items, the majority of them, they are, they're, they're not, they are mutually exclusive, right? They compete with one another, right? Husband, wife, you can't have two separate ones from this list because they just don't play well together and you will have conflict in your marriage, I promise you. But by God's standards... <laughs> The key is no real mystery. To the world, it's a crapshoot, right? Throw the dice and whatever somebody thinks, well, okay, that's good for you, whatever. Um, but by God's standards, there's, there's no real mystery. It's not that hard. In fact, it's, it's pretty straightforward. We just don't like it. <laughs> that's, that's the only part of it. We just don't like it, at least until we've tried it, right? Let, let me put it, put it like that. Um, and it's a principle that makes us not only great in God's eyes but it, and the world's eyes, <laughs> but also in God's eyes. And in our family's eyes, we become truly, truly, truly great. And it's this greatness principle. Right? Scripture never uses the phrase, kind of like you won't see Trinity or the word original sin or prevenient grace. There's a lot of doctrinal words that we use to describe what we read in the Bible. The Bible doesn't give it a name, but we, to kind of organize and to create you know, the thematic thought and kind of pull everything together, we give things names in our Bibles that aren't necessarily in our Bibles. And I'm just going to call this the greatness principle. Um, it's a phrase that aptly describes what Jesus taught his disciples. Dozens of places in the Gospels, in, in Proverbs, uh, in Acts, in, in, in Paul's letters. I mean, I mean it's everywhere. So, but, but I want to start. I want to start where we, we all started uh, with Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 9, verse 33. And the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And, and again, what I want to share with you is this greatness principle, I'm going to kind of build it up just a little bit here um, and challenge you to live it. In Mark chapter 9, we, we've read this. When he was back in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last, the servant of all. And he took a little child whom he had placed among them and taken the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So in much the same manner that Jesus would one day get down on his hands and knees and take off his outer garment and wrap a towel around his waist and wash the disciples' filthy feet. In exactly the same manner, Jesus demonstrates what he's talking about right here. Um, and, and I, you know, as, as I read this and I'm writing these words, um, I, it, it, the thought hit me, what, what if we Christians were better at demonstrating what we believed, right? We're really good at telling people what we believe, but we don't always demonstrate it very well. And this is just, just a broad statement. Nobody, it's not directed at anybody. Um, so he demonstrates, right? Um, washing feet and caring for children was the the task of the lowest of the lowest, which would be the servants. And in fact, it would always be given to the rookie, right? Whoever was the rookie servant at your job, dirty feet, dirty diapers. <laughs> That's what you signed up for, and you're at the bottom of the totem pole, and, you know, poop rolls downhill, so, right? So, that's the way I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, here's the interesting part, though. Here's the really, really sad part as, as we kind of dig into this just a little bit. Every time a gospel writer talks about or presents one of Jesus' teachings on being great, 
nearly every single time. Go home, check this out. That narrative, that story in whatever gospel we're looking at is always couched or bookended by Jesus talking about the fact that he has to be killed. Every time. For example, take a look. This is in, um, uh, we're going to look at chapter uh, 9 in, in Mark's gospel. Um, but he, but he's, always, he's always trying to tell them that he has to suffer and he has to, he has to die um, in order to demonstrate the power of what he's talking about, right? So greatness is always coupled with suffering for the other one. The gospel writers, like they took great pains to, to make sure those stories were right next to each other, like every single time. Again, in chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, it opens up with the transfiguration. You know, and, and I read this as, as, as almost as if in the same manner as Gabriel, like leaning into to Mary, right, that, that young girl who's just been kind of blown away by all this news, and he's like, man, she's overwhelmed. So, and I, again, I can almost see Gabriel whispering to her, hey, don't, honey, don't worry. Remember your cousin Elizabeth, she's old, and she's already six months pregnant, so Believe what God says. And, and, and at this point, I, I feel like the transfiguration, that's God talking to his son, like Jesus, hey, it's going to be okay. Right? I, I, I'm going I'm to lift you up. I'm going to provide an experience for you so that you understand this is real. This is, this is happening. <laughs> this is happening, baby. Right? I don't think he called Jesus that. But anyway, starting at verse 20 and 30 and leading right up to our passage, we have the transfiguration, and then we have this incredible long section in the middle of chapter 9 in which Jesus is just kind of frustrated, right? Because the people, they want him to, you know, fix all their problems, and the disciples try to do it, but they can't do it, so the crowd brings a, a, a kid that, that's, that's filled with demons or whatever, and, hey, your disciples can't do this, and Jesus is like, oh, you, uh, you guys, and you, you get the impression that he's just frustrated, so he does it, he heals them because he always has compassion, right? Jesus can't look on somebody with need and walk away. He, he just can't do it. He, he can't do it. He's always, and, and the writer is always, he's always filled with compassion. His heart breaks for lives that are broken. He, he can't help it. Right? It's just what he does. And so you got this transfiguration. He's like on cloud nine. And then this big old chaotic mess. The people are all screaming. His disciples, we don't know what we're doing. Help us, you know. And he kind of fixes everything. And then this happens, starting at verse 20, 30, excuse me. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Based on what had just happened, I get the very strong impression that Jesus knew his disciples would be, they would be confused. They had just witnessed um, what we can only call a, you know, when Jesus did a miracle, it was a, it was a, um, a brute show of force. It, 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 it was. It was just like wham and like, whoa. Right? It wasn't, I'm going to tell you something, I'm going to show you, and you're just going to stand back in awe um, at, at this thing. And so Jesus knew that they would be confused, that they would equate greatness with raw displays of power, earthly power. And so he pulls them all aside and says, you know, what you just saw, well, we're going to get to what he says. Um, but what he's trying to teach them is that the true greatness in the situation didn't happen in that crowd. The true greatness happened when he decided, when the Son of Man decided to 
give his life as a ransom for others. That's when the power was exercised. That's when greatness happened. Everything else was just inevitable. Once a decision was made that I will bless other people, that's what my life will be about. Everything else is just inevitable. The other shoe's waiting to drop. People are just going to get blessed. That's just all there is to it. Because the greatness, the decision to be great had already happened. I will serve people. So he tries yet again to describe true greatness. Right? See if you can catch it here. Verses 31, 32. He said to them, Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Again, this is the couching. You know, the discussion on greatness, they're arguing about greatness, and right before it, a wise gospel writer puts this, right before it, he said to them, Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it, right? They were just, they were just confused, but again, because they'd never experienced the greatness that he was talking about, and they were thinking there's got to be some kind of catch here, right? He can't be serious that, that we're going to serve people. No, we're going to be the leaders. People are going to serve us. And like, they're, they're, just, they're just confused. And then in verse 33, again, Jesus asked his disciples what they'd been arguing about, and they were embarrassed, right? And again, we have the exact same pattern in Matthew 20. I'm going to jump now to another gospel writer. This is Matthew. This is in chapter 20, verse 17. It says this. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 disciples, the 12 aside, and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And immediately following this, again, go home, check this out. Immediately, like verse 20, you have James and John's mother, right, the sons of Zebedee, right? She comes up and pulls Jesus aside and says, hey, you've been watching my boys. I want you to give them number one spot and number two spot. And he just now said, like, like no, you're, you're not getting it, right? I'm, I'm trying to explain something to you that true greatness isn't what you're talking about, mama. It's not about your boys. It's about your boys suffering and dying, and I don't think they're ready for that. I don't think they're going to like that cup. Got this crazy, crazy discussion. Even before Jesus' kingdom begins, right? Let's just go back just a little bit about this, this principle, this greatness principle. Um, King Solomon shows us what it would look like in several different Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, it says this, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others, I want you to read, serves others, will be refreshed also. And then Proverbs 19, chapter, or verses 17, it says this, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them. I know we look at that word reward and we're like, we just, we, we struggle with it, but it's all over the place. It's all over the place. He wants to reward our, our goodness, our kindness. That's what draws us to him, right? That we could be as whole as he is. He will reward them for what they were done. And then one more, 22.9, the generous will themselves be blessed, made happy, for they share their food with the poor. Then the, then the Beatitudes, blessed are those, very, very happy are those. Throughout the whole list, it's, it's a list of people who suffer for others. Blessed, happy, if you give for others. And then finally in Luke's gospel, one more descriptor. 
The greatness principle. Chapter 6, verse 28, given it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you're stingy, God's going to be stingy. If you're generous, God's going to be generous. It's that simple. It's that simple. But again, the clearest description, the best description, and I come back to this like I probably every second sermon I preach, I can't help but come back to his letter to the Philippi church, right? The attitude of a servant. He says this, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, who, talking about Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So even though he's, a, he's the very essence of God, he humbles himself and he lifts other people up. Instead of lording it over people like the Gentiles do, he lifts them up and he, and he serves them. And as a result, this is a result, right? Verse 9 and 10, therefore... I want you to make sure you understand this. This isn't like a tickle party. God and Jesus, oh, this is fun. Let's bless each other. And, right? No, no, this isn't an exercise in self-esteem either. God's not guy, you know, Jesus, good job, good boy, good boy. Right? No, this is a direct, not payment, but a blessing, a reward for Jesus being obedient even unto death to his heavenly Father. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All right, so here's the deal. God wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be happy. Not as in God wants you to be rich. I just kind of want to Put that down there. Now, my guess is, and from my experience, I think God is okay with certain people being rich. Well, rich is a very, very <laughs> comparative term. Um, my my in-laws, they they didn't struggle. They 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 weren't rich. I don't think. And when we use the term rich, um, but I I always get the impression that they're one of those couples that God could have just put billions of dollars on, and you would never know it unless you were the recipient of Chuck and Jackie's grace. Because that's what they did. They just, they just they gave and they gave and they gave. And, they, and nobody knew it. Nobody knew it unless you were the recipient, right? So I know that God's okay with some people being rich. I'm fairly certain he doesn't want me rich. I, I know me. I, I know me. It would wreck me. I, I, I know this. So bored, don't give me a written. No, that's not where I was going with that. So settle down. Everybody settle down. But here's what he's driving at. He wants to make your life matter to others as much as you want your life to matter to others. Right? Y'all, you have the same goal as your heavenly father. He wants you to be a blessing. You want to be a blessing. He wants you to be great. You want to be great. The greatness principle is very simple. A child could understand it. Here it is. I'm keeping you on pins and needles the whole time. When you bless others, God blesses you. It's fairly simple, isn't it? It's just like, wow, that's only like seven words. <laughs> Again, not the type of reward that would imply that God's going to punish you if you don't. I said, so, so don't go down that road. It's more, um, right, it, it, again, it can't be guilt. It can't be guilt-induced. Um, it, it's more the reasonable and therefore appropriate response to such overwhelming grace in your life and, and mercy, right? God wants to see us fully human, perfectly and wholly human. But when we choose other life principles, 
When we choose other things other than Christ to center our lives around, we stop God from blessing us. God's in the business of blessing people. That's what we call prevenient grace. He is always in the business of blessing people. That's the way he draws us into him. I don't care if we're the worst of the worst. He gives us grace and mercy. Even though we've never acknowledged his son, and we might not ever acknowledge his son, but he loves us so much that he's going to bless us anyway. He, that's just what God does. He blesses people. We're the ones that stop him from blessing when we choose not to be obedient. That's why God sent his son. In John 10.10, 10, it says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill, kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and they have it to the full. Again, the thief isn't, for a long time, I was told that the thief was the evil one, but as you look through this passage, the thief actually represents the hired hand, the person who's not committed to loving the sheep. He's just looking for a paycheck. The paycheck is more important than the sheep. The thief is anybody who lives a lifestyle, who claims to love you, claims to love humanity, claims to love God, but they've got a a principle that their life is centered around that is not Christ. And because of that, a lot of people in their circle, in their life, gets used. You get, you get treated as a hired hand would treat the boss's equipment, right? Drive it like you rented it. That's what we get. In each of the gospel narratives, we have Jesus trying to, to get the disciples to see the connection between his suffering and their joy being made complete and their necessity, the necessity they're going to have to suffer in order to make their loved ones complete. Right? They're not seeing that. They're, they're like, okay, you're going to suffer, but we don't have to, right? And like time after time after time, Jesus is saying, yeah. If you want to be great, you're going to suffer for somebody. That's, that's my route to greatness. And here's the upside downness of it all. It's that in the suffering, and, and we see this, in Jesus' suffering, his joy was made complete because he knew what he, he gave. And by extension, our joy will be made complete when we suffer for others. I know that sounds crazy, but that's the truth of it. And that's what we all wanted anyway, right? right? To matter and to make a difference in somebody's life. That's your Heavenly Father's goal too. If you bow your heads, Father, thank you. Thank you for this little lesson in greatness. You don't tell us don't be great. You guide us into a greatness that surpasses anything that we could have done on our own. So, Father, in this series, help me help, me help you uh, present and demonstrate how you view greatness and how it's a little bit different than the world's understanding of greatness. Uh, so, Father, we look forward to this. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that reminds us of these things throughout the week, guides us into those decisions that would mirror what we, what we take in in this place. Uh, Father, thank you for how you, how you do everything. I'm just in awe. Um, All glory goes to you, Father. In your son's name I pray. Amen.